Support for WRFA is brought to you in part by the United Ways of Chautauqua County. United Way is a nonprofit organization that mobilizes the community to help every person and family improve their lives. Donations to the United Way stay 100% locally in our community and get invested in more than 40 community-based programs. These programs help students achieve academic success, families to be self-sufficient and financially stable, and vulnerable households to get their basic and emergency needs met. The United Ways of Chautauqua County, proud supporters of community radio in Jamestown, New York. To learn more, visit uascc.org or call 716-483-1561. We're in the midst of the holiday season, and with that comes the desire to extend peace and goodwill to all. However, a more recent holiday event in October saw just the opposite. In October, two men attended Halloween parties at the Carol Rod and Gun Club in Frewsburg American Legion dressed up in blackface and lawn jockey costumes. Photos from that party were shared on social media and the public outcry resulted in the commander of that American Legion resigning with the two men who were part of the Sons of American Legion group resigning from that organization. While news coverage of that story has come down with people at the center of it being held accountable, it would be naive to think that the issues at hand have been resolved. I brought in Jamestown YWCA's Director of Social Justice and Race Equity, Alizé Scott, to talk not just about this case of racism in our county, but also to discuss how white privilege and microaggressions are part of the issue. So welcome. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. So while some may say it's old news, I want to talk first about the lawn jockey costumes, Uh, because whenever we get to Halloween, it seems like common sense isn't so common when it comes to what is appropriate. And uh, I think this would be a supreme example of that, what we had happened here in Chautauqua County. Right. Yeah. So first, let's just start by talking about the history of the lawn jockey. Um, So the history about it is really kind of unclear, um, just because, again, it took place so long ago as far as when it first probably came about. So some associate it with the story of Jocko Graves. So Graves was a 12-year-old African-American boy whose father, Tom Graves, um, answered the call for local militiamen to fight in General George Washington's army. And Jocko Graves, even though he was very young, um, was eager to participate in this fight with his father. Um, But Washington deemed Jocko to be far too young, but insisted that he keep the lanterns burning so that upon returning from battle, they would know where to go. Um, When they did return, they found Jocko Graves frozen to death, unfortunately, but he was still holding the burning lantern. Um, So because of his dedication, Washington created a statue known as the Faithful Groomsman to commemorate the honor of Jocko Graves. So that's kind of one of the stories about maybe where this had originated from. Um, And then over time, as the statue kind of changed, was adapted um, based off of the time periods, it did take on the resemblance of a racist character known known as Sambo. Um, So if the audience is unfamiliar with Sambo, Sambo was depicted as a perpetual child, not capable of living as an independent adult. Very servile, very loyal um, to white people, and really just at their beckoning call. And this um, symbol, this character, was really used as a justification of why black people needed to continue to be enslaved because they were children that needed basically a parent, which would become white people. 
So again, as it adopted this character of Sambo, we see that it has very darkened skin, very clownish um, red lips, and again, quickly becomes a symbol of racism, which is typically what black people associate the lawn jockey with, is because of its attachment to this character of, Sim of Sambo. Um, and then there's also the narrative that the lawn jockey was used in the Underground Railroad to help um, slaves or enslaved people who were trying to seek their freedom along the way to kind of find the proper routes, um, safety areas. Um, and this is the defense that we see some people using in regards to these costumes being used um, during Halloween time was that, well, it's really an honorable symbol because it was part of the Underground Railroad and it helped enslaved black people find their freedom. Um, unfortunately, though, there's not much evidence. There's little to no evidence, actually, that this was a part of the Underground Railroad at all. Um, so when we're thinking about the history of it, dressing up as a lawn jockey, as a jockey, there's really no issue with that. However, <laughs> once you pair it with blackface, that's when it becomes the issue. Um, and it's an issue because of the history of blackface, you know. Um, so blackface became popular with minstrel shows. So the first minstrel shows appeared in the 1830s in New York. Um, and it was when white performers would blacken their faces. So they would either use burnt cork or shoe polish. They'd wear like these very tattered clothing. Um, and it was a way for them to mimic the enslaved Africans and African-Americans at that time. So Thomas um, Dartmouth Rice is known as the father of minstrel zine. Um, and he first developed the very first popular character of blackface known as Jim Crow, which I'm sure many of us are familiar with Jim Crow, if not the character, at least the era of Jim Crow. Um, so again, these performances were to characterize black people as lazy, um, childlike, ignorant, hypersexual, prone to thievery, very just bad things. And again, these stereotypes were really meant to just keep perpetuating this idea that black people did not deserve their freedom because they wouldn't know what to do with it. So we needed to continue to enslave them because of all of these characteristics that they might have. Um, so again, regardless of how you frame the use of blackface, if you say, oh, well, it's honorable because of the Underground Railroad, blackface in itself is an inherently racist act. It was born out of racism. So there's really no excuse, especially in this day and age when we have seen so many stories come out, whether it be from local civilians using blackface or even as high up as politicians using blackface. Like, there's no reason why we are continuing to do this when we have seen time and time again that this is a very bad and negative thing. And, you know, thank you for that, that history, because even the original story that you gave about George Washington and the statue there, I, I had not heard about that. I'd heard about, you know, the argument, oh, it's part of the Underground Railroad, and I'd heard other people even use that. And I said, That's, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't no. sound accurate <laughs> by far. And yeah, with blackface, I, I in, around Jamestown, I even can remember some Halloweens running to people, you know, dress up as Michael Jackson, and they they were not you know black themselves and or a person of color, and 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 they were called out for it, uh, at least at least well by other people, other white people, you know, you shouldn't be dressed like that. And I'm like, well, gosh, I'm like, I'm kind of surprised that they came out. I'm like, well, and I, I kind of like, I'm like, it's it's a one-off incident, and then to see this happen. In Frewsburg this um, past October, 
private party or not, uh, as still someone who, two, you know, two people who felt comfortable in going out in public dressed in that certain way. And when it comes to people thinking it's okay, I think this kind of plays into uh, white privilege, which I'm going to bring it up first, uh, just because, <laughs> you know, I, um, you know, for, I am the white person in the room, I feel, and so, it, you know, I think I'm okay with saying I have white privilege because I recognize just systemically what has been, you know, happened through our country and even nationally or beyond our national borders. So when it comes to the phrase white privilege, it does put some white people on defense. Yes. Because, it, and, uh, you know, and when all is saying, and I'm going to paraphrase writer John Greenberg, is that a person's whiteness comes with an array of benefits and advantages not shared by many people of color. And there, there are lists out there that give examples of what white privilege is. And I think, you know, this, these two individuals who dress in blackface for these parties, that, that's an evidence of white privilege. They felt they could go out and not be criticized by their peers uh, who were those of, you know, who were also white. And they probably felt that no one was going to challenge them on it, maybe even from outside that group. Until social media came along. And, right. <laughs> yeah. And when it comes to white privilege, I think that's, you know, a clear example. But we see it beyond, I mean, beyond this whole, you know, the Halloween costumes. Right, and that. Yes. We see this all the time. And um, when I, I found this white privilege checklist by Peggy McIntosh, who is the associate director of the Wellesley College Center for Research on Women. And a couple of the things that, I mean, there were some things on there I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's. I would say it's known things, but a couple items that like, I can be sure that my children will be given curricular materials that testify to the existence of their race. Uh, I can go into a music shop and count on finding the music of my race represented, into a supermarket and find the food I grew up with, into a hairdresser shop and find someone who can deal with my hair. And maybe that that one, it's like, I, I know I can go get my hair cut anywhere. And then I think about, you know, what texturally, and, and hair is a very sensitive topic. And thankfully, right, there yeah. are now new laws about it mm-hmm. that protect um, people of color and, and their, the way they can wear their hair and not be prosecuted. Um, but I know that, like, you have gorgeous hair. Thank and you. I, and it's like, it's, it's, it's so, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of it. But I know that I can think of a couple places where I'm not sure if you want to get your a haircut or get it styled. I don't know that they are stylists and those are, those places that would be able to accommodate your needs. Right, yeah. So I actually learned how to do my own hair because of the fact that it's very difficult around here to find somebody who can deal with all of this that is going on in my head. Um, So I have a very dense afro. um, And typically, you know, hairstylists, if I do kind of engage with them and say, oh, well, what can you offer? Typically, I mean, not so much now. I don't know if it's changed because, Mm -hmm. again, I just learned how to do my own hair so that way I wouldn't have to kind of run into these issues. But it was always offering a relaxer or offering to straighten my hair. So, again, changing its form so that it'd be more manageable for them to do instead of just working with what I already had on my head. So, yeah, that would definitely be an example of white privilege is I couldn't just call up 
any local salon and be like, oh, hey, I need to book an appointment because there is so much extra care and attention and different products and all of these other things that go into taking care of black hair that typically aren't available in this area. Like I even have to go to Buffalo just to get certain hair products or order them online because again, we don't have stores that even offer any of these things. Um, so yeah, that's definitely an example of white privilege. And even when we're thinking about this Halloween costume, it would be an example of white privilege. And typically people probably wouldn't look at it that way. Um, so it's important to break down what white privilege really is. And Julia, you mentioned that people usually get on the def defense about white privilege mm -hmm. when you bring it up. So it's really important to talk about the difficulties of the term before we get into what it actually means. So first you have to say what it's not um, in order for people to feel comfortable about what it actually is. Um, so it's difficult for people to understand or grasp the term white privilege for a number of different reasons. Um, but the first main one that I see time and time again is if they are a white person who has struggled, they believe that white privilege doesn't exist because they've grown up poor or they have faced some kind of challenges, difficulties, hardships growing up in their life, whether as a child, whether in adulthood over the span of their life, whatever it may be. Um, so it's hard for them to recognize that white privilege actually exists because of the difficulties that they've faced. Another thing is the fact that we are even using the term white <laughs> attached to privilege. So obviously it's no secret um, that the dominant group in society historically has been anything associated with white and whiteness. Um, and using the term white causes this discomfort because it's very rare that we name whiteness in our society. In fact, that's how it functions so well is that it is largely invisible. Um, we don't have to call it out. We don't have to name it. We just know that it's there. Um, and that is really what gives it some of its power as well is the fact that we just ignore that it's there at the same time. Um, so that is why the ter terms like white privilege, white supremacy, white guilt, white fragility, white domestic terrorism, all of these things are very frightening to people because we are now attaching and using this term white. Um, so it causes this discomfort because, again, it's rare for white people to actually be defined or described by their race, um, considering they are part of the dominant culture. Um, and they usually have the luxury to ignore anything that is associated with race because, again, and they're part of the larger dominant culture. So um, these issues of race that we talk about don't typically affect them, um, at least not firsthand. Um, but white privilege, when we're talking about it, it is not saying that white people don't struggle, um, that they've never faced hardships or difficulties, but instead it's pointing out that their white skin isn't the cause of those difficulties, isn't the cause of those hardships, but in fact is the opposite. Um, we know, again, historically speaking, that whiteness, white skin, holds a lot of merit and value in our society. So just simply being born with white skin, you are going to reap some kind of benefit. Um, and this is not to say that because you have white privilege, you are inherently racist. Again, that's not it at all either. But we do have to recognize the importance that we associate and the power that we associate with having white skin. Um, so white privilege is really just having more access to power and resources than BIPOC people, so black indigenous people of color, um, who are in the same or similar situations um, as another white person. Um, 
And white privilege goes beyond this as well because it also affects how we talk about different issues in society, issues that affect all communities, um, but we typically frame them differently when we're speaking about a white community as opposed to a BIPOC community. Um, so just to give some examples, um, if we're talking about something like drug addiction, for example. So historically speaking, when we talk about something like the crack epidemic that devastated the black community in the 80s, the way it is framed by the media or even government officials at the time is it largely blames the black community um, and doesn't offer any help. <laughs> Um, and fails to recognize the systemic racism that is tied into why it largely devastated this community. Um, and instead, again, of providing assistance, instead we waged the war on drugs, which even further devastated these communities of color. Um, however, <laughs> then when we talk about drug addiction um, in regards to white communities, we see it as this ep epidemic. So the opioid, opioid e epidemic. Um, and we quickly go to, oh my goodness, this is devastating. How can we fix this? How can we aid these communities? How can we make this better? What services can we provide? So we quickly go to a solution instead of a blame. Again, when we're talking about something like drug addiction, for example. Um, Another example would be act of terror that occur here in the United States. So when an act of terrorism happens from a group who is not white, we villainize anybody who looks like they could be associated with that group. 9-11, for example, um, we saw a huge spike in Islamophobia because we considered anybody to be a part of some kind of country that looked like they were from the Middle East, that they were now a terrorist. And we saw this huge spike in hate towards these groups, even if they had nothing to do with this incident, even if they were Americans, we still associated them with this act of terror. However, again, when we see white domestic terrorism happen here in the United States, we don't even call it that. We can't even name the fact mm -hmm. that it is white domestic terrorism. Um, we typically change the narrative. We frame it a little bit differently. We bring up issues of, well, maybe this person was mentally ill. Maybe they were just a lone wolf or whatever it may be. But again, we don't actually name it what it is. And the fact that we have constantly failed to name white domestic terrorism, white domestic terrorism, um, is largely why it is able to keep happening because we ignore that that is what it really is even though this is largely how our country has operated when we look mm -hmm. at the inception of America like white domestic terrorism has been a huge part of the history of this country but again because we can't name it it's difficult for us to talk about it's able to just keep perpetuating because we we just can't call it out um so these would just be examples, again, of how white privilege even changes how we frame issues versus blaming somebody or offering solutions to help out different communities. Um, and often people fail to realize just how big and encompassing of a term white privilege is. Um, so it really... When we're talking about this term, about white privilege, it tells us so much about how society operates around making sure that the needs of people who are white are readily met as far as which products are available, which services are available, like hair salon, um, and even as far as the positive representation that we see of them in the media and news outlets um, and movies. And we know that this is something that has been largely a part of conversations lately is about representation. And we do see kind of a shift of who's represented. Um, but we know that historically and largely still, it is white people that we see in these positive images. Um, 
And then also just their treatment that they receive when they're using these different services or when they're interacting with things like law enforcement or authority. And also, and this is a big thing, the ability um, to not feel that it's necessary to extend compassion and empathy to others because historically they have been on the receiving end. Um, and essentially they've been kind of this poster child of all that is right and good and normal and how things should be um, and also getting the final word of how things should be. So that makes it very easy to chalk up issues such as blackface, um, the Native American mascot, um, critical race theory, the renaming and rebranding of certain products to people just being too sensitive because it's it does not directly affect them um, so they're able to remove themselves entirely if they choose to from these issues because again their race really isn't something that comes into play when we're thinking about all of these things so again we chalk it up to sensitivity people are snowflakes people are just oh my goodness we can't do or say anything anymore um, which again is very easy to say when you can't really identify with these communities. You don't really understand because you've never been on the other side of this to know just how devastating these certain issues and topics can be. Right. And I also look at it, you know, thinking about when people are, you know, white people are, you know, been the dominant, been, you know, held up as the example. No one likes to admit they're wrong. And in this case, they're being told you have to accept that you've been wrong or your ancestors have been wrong and take responsibility and that's another huge thing is that it's not just admitting you're wrong it's taking responsibility for past wrongs and current and then change and then i mean so these things are i think i often think about you know it took us and I, I don't remember where this was said it took us hundreds of years to get to where we are now and it would be naive to think that we can change everything in like 10 or 15 years right uh and but we have to try that's the, and that's why I always say, well, you, you have to start somewhere. And if you aren't doing the work now, then you're you're just contributing to the problem. And I, when I say you, I mean me or anybody else who is white. So um, and that's the thing. White people need to do this work. Right. Yeah. And I feel that's also something that we need to talk about is whose responsibility is this? So when we're thinking about historically and now people realizing, oh, maybe we've been wrong about history or wrong about all of these ideas and biases and stereotypes that we have created around certain racialized groups. Um, it's very shocking and also typically comes with the defense of, well, I wasn't there. I didn't create this. How is this my responsibility? Um, and of course, none of us were there. You know, it's we're centuries removed. But the most important thing to recognize is that these issues, again, didn't just go away as time passed. Instead, you know, they are constantly changing. They're constantly evolving, even with the idea of race. That is a constantly evolving thing. It is a social political construct. It is not a real thing, you know, but again, it changes with the times. It changes with whatever is going on. Um, in the country during that time. And I always refer people to the documentary Race, the Power of an Illusion to really see how race has evolved. We know that there are certain um, groups who are now considered white people who were not treated so well when they first came over here, but we see how whiteness absorbed these groups and the power that that has, um, especially when we're thinking in terms of now race relations amongst all of these different groups who were never supposed to be categorized this way to begin with um 
So when we fast forward to today, we're still seeing all of these effects, maybe in a different light, of course. Again, they're changing with the times, um, but they're still affecting us. Systemic racism does not just dissolve because we have the civil rights movement or we have Black Lives Matter. Like This does not go away until we actually address all of these structural issues that are happening surrounding these issues of race. So when we're talking about things like white privilege, when we're talking about things like racism, this is not to play the blame game of, well, now all white people you owe people of color an apology, but more so how can we as a society realize these negative effects of race? Because again, typically when we're thinking about issues of race and racism, we only think about how it affects BIPOC people. We never think about how issues of race and racism are affecting white people um, in their everyday lives, how they move, but even in their psyche. So it's important that we come together and realize this is a fictional thing. How can we get rid of this and really just move together as we were meant to, which is as a human race? Um, so again, it's not to play the blame game, but more so just to call people in of how do we figure this out? Like this is a large issue and too large of an issue to just think that BIPOC people need to figure it out because they're the only ones affected. Because again, that's not true. We're all affected by these issues of race and racism. So it's a collective. Um, and it's important that white people play their part as well in trying to solve these issues and using their white privilege for good <laughs> because mm -hmm. that is a thing you know white privilege again isn't a bad thing um i really wish people would stop associating it with something so negative um but you can use your white privilege for the benefit of others you know um it could be a very good and a very powerful thing when you're thinking about how can i use this to again absolve these issues of race and racism or even just alleviate some of the issues that we're seeing in certain BIPOC communities. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, when it comes to white privilege, uh, we look at, and granted that the demographics have changed over the years, but even like people who are elected officials who have the ability to change laws that, you know, uh, you know, an example of white privilege would be someone who is, you know, white and elected saying, I'm going to go forward, I'm going to collaborate with my colleagues who are, you know, BIPOC and create some substantial legislation that helps alleviate what you know whatever the situation or helps you know restructure something so that would be like on a big level i think yes I'm, yeah I, i've also heard you know examples of you know if you're a white person you see something happening calling it out uh in a sense or standing or being an observer uh, one thing i was going around a lot and i forget after for which incident it could be you know any any number where if you see someone who's a person of color pulled over by police that you pull over and, and you basically stand and you observe because you have the privilege of, you know, probably that you won't have any issues, but the chance that that person who's pulled over right. may have an issue with the police or law enforcement is just higher. And that's you know, one of those talk about white privilege is that right, I get pulled yeah. over for speeding. I might get a slap on the wrist where I don't know if I would be afforded that same, you know, you know, you know, go on, just behave, slow down if I if I was a person of color. Right. And even if you were afforded that as a person of color, the terror and fear that just comes with something like that. Even if, again, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, we'll just slow down. Like the fear that that ignites is such a huge thing that nobody talks about. Right. Um, so yeah, that's another thing to consider when we're thinking about something like white privilege as well, is even the feelings that you have moving throughout the day, moving in different spaces, interacting with different people that you otherwise might not have if you're a BIPOC person in a predominantly white space, interacting with law enforcement, interacting with authority. You know, a whole host of other feelings come in 
because you're aware as a BIPOC mm-hmm. person of how this could go, how this could be different. And as much as, you know, it's important to see the good and everything, you know, you, you do as a person of color need to be aware that things can be very different because of how you're moving through the world. Right. And, they, and I think there's been studies even now like that affects health wise um, people of color because of, you know, the amount of stress that is involved there that that compounds. And yes. we know that, you know, they we always hear you need to de-stress. You need to, you know, it's good for your health. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your body. And white, white people, yeah, they can go and they can go and chill out and, you know, take a, you know, a mental health day. But for black people, they 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 can't get away from it. Right. And so how do you heal from that? You can't. I mean, essentially, with how things are set up today, you can't heal. So that is another thing that you want to talk about white privilege. Health-wise, they're in disparity there. And that's before we get into all the other health things. Right, that, you yes. know, <laughs> Black people, not you know, especially black women, not being believed when, you know, when they are in pain, mm-hmm. when they go to an emergency room or by doctors in general. And I, I think we could probably spend... probably several hours just going through all the different things that black people have to deal with simply because there's color of their skin and that white people just it's not I mean they have their issues not you know they not every situation is perfect for them when they go like to the emergency room or go to the doctors but they certainly have far less issues they have to face because of that one thing yeah, and even just going back to you brought up like de-stressing and trying to get away from these things. Even our, you know, the things that we do to try to de-stress, you know, like having a barbecue, listening to music. These things have gotten us killed in the past. You know, mm-hmm. these things have gotten the police called us on us in the past. So even as we try to escape and go into these more joyful places, even our joy has become something that is seen as a threat and a danger to society. So it does become very hard at times to just maneuver as a person, as a human being, because you know, we can't just take our skin off and not be a person of color. You know, we have to constantly move through this. And this is not to say that I love being a black person. Um, But again, there are so many difficulties that can come with this. And the emotional strain, you know, there have been many studies that do show the negative impacts that racism has on the health and ultimately the lifespan of people of color because it is such a daunting thing to take on, um, especially if you're a person of color who lives in a predominantly white area you know there's so many little things and microaggressions that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis that over time even though they're small to start off with you know they build up and they become something just so burdensome um and yeah it does have an impact on your physical health your mental health your emotional health all of these other things that a lot of times people don't really think about i feel like mm-hmm. and I mean, when you're talking about, you know, white privilege in terms of how, you know, what people, white people can do. And then also I think about there's, there's smaller things that white people can do. And there's also things that small things that white people do do maybe unconsciously. And we call those microaggressions. And uh, for a a standard definition of, of, for microaggression is a verbal or nonverbal slight that impacts an individual who might identify as being from a marginalized or non-stream, non-mainstream community. It can even come in the form of an organizational process that was designed to keep specific groups from advancing. And I'm trying to think, and this is one of those things, it's, a, it's not a great example of a, of a, um, a microaggression, but it's uh, when a man tells me to smile, 
If I'm just going about my business and or I'm in a meeting or something and a man tells me to smile and I'm like, that's not my progression because I'm like, I don't owe you a smile. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't owe you that. <laughs> Why are you telling me but to make you feel better? And I'm like, that's, and then so, yeah. So that's, that would be my first example that I think probably a lot of women have come across. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, for to give something, you know, the, for some people who might be listening to say, okay, I, I've seen that, I've heard that. But what would be other examples of microaggressions that um, the BICOC community experiences? And how how do we, how should, I guess maybe in giving the examples, it gives the, you know, kind of like the here are examples, don't do this, basically. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so, of course, like when we're talking about microaggressions, we do know like there are certain people who engage in behavior because they're just racist, you know. But when we're talking about microaggressions, typically, again, these are unconscious. People don't mean to be so offensive. Um, it's little things that maybe they feel are actually compliments or good things. Um, but again, it's important to note that your good intentions sometimes are not always well received because they do come off as almost an insult to people who are part of BIPOC communities. So just to give a few examples, um, somebody asking if they could touch my hair. Um, that would be considered a microaggression um, because I'm not a petting zoo. And when we're looking historically, the fact that black people were actually put into human zoos for people to observe and pet, it is a very offensive thing to ask somebody. Um, asking somebody, is that all your real hair, <laughs> is also considered a microaggression um, because why are you assuming that this person of color cannot grow beautiful, long, luscious hair, whatever it may be? Um, so yeah, I've had people say that to me before. And even like asking a BIPOC person, where are you from? And then when they tell you, oh, well, I'm local, born and raised. No, where are you really from? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, making it seem like, oh, no matter like if you were born here, you're still an outsider. So I need to know your family heritage in order to know like where did you actually originate from? You know, right. that's also a very offensive thing. Um, and I, I've had an experience before where I was at a doctor's office and there was a new doctor there She's calling me back into the exam room and she says my name and she corrects, she pronounces it correctly, which I was shocked by because <laughs> most people don't know how to say it. So she said, Alize, and I, I come up and we go into the exam room and she says to me, you know, I was unsure how to pronounce this at first, especially when I saw you. I didn't think somebody like you would have such a quote unquote fancy name. And I was like, oh, Okay, <laughs> like yeah. something like that is also considered a microaggression right. because, again, we typically associate certain names with black communities, certain names. But, you know, mm -hmm. there's all of these things that we have become like begun to racialize. You know, everything has become racialized. Um, so that would also be an example of a microaggression. <laughs> and yeah, I'm thinking when the names I think I've heard and I, I forget and I heard it said about this is I this is in my lifetime, so I can't tell you exactly the situation where someone said, oh, they speak so well. Oh, yeah. I get that mm -hmm. a lot. You're so articulate. Mm -hmm. um, you're so polite. Oh, I'm shocked by how polite you are, as if because I'm a person of color, I don't have any mannerisms <laughs> or right. don't know how to speak um, in standard English, which, again, that is something that is rooted in white supremacist culture mm -hmm. is the proper way to speak, the proper way to dress, the proper way to wear your hair. Like All of these things are rooted in white supremacy. But again, we don't think about that because it has become so normalized in our society. So when we're questioning why somebody talks a certain way, dresses 
a certain way, wears their hair a certain way, you know, these are all considered microaggressions because again, their ties to the systemic racism that we largely ignore is infiltrated in literally everything, um, which I know people hate because they're like, no, not everything is rooted in race, but unfortunately so many things are. <laughs> um, so we need to start recognizing these things again to change our culture, to change our society and how we are viewing certain things that are, again, everyday common occurrences. Right. And I think that when it comes to people who are saying these things, they've never been told, don't do that. Right. And they've never been told, this is why you don't do that. And it's, I think if I went up to another white person and who's, you know, maybe... I'm going to give the example of, you know, a, a pale, pale skin redhead. And I say, where are you from? And they would be like, and if they told me, well, I, I grew up in Frewsburg, I'll be like, oh, okay, all right. right. And that would be the end of the story. Yeah. And, then, and, then, and you know, it might be, and maybe I would go further and be, no, 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 what's your ancestry? Because, you know, like people love to talk about their ancestry and right. everything. <laughs> another, let's say, another privilege. We can find out where we're from and, our, and research our genealogy, no problem for the most part. Right, when yeah. For, you know. BIPOC people of color, especially the black community, is like you can go back maybe a certain point, you mm -hmm. get into the 1800s, and it becomes a little harder. Right. And gosh, <laughs> I wonder why. Oh, it's because slavery. Right. I mean, and, and so, you know, and I love the the, um, the Finding Your Roots show uh, on PBS because um, Dr. Henry Gates, you know, he's the work he's done to be able to find even the information he has for some of his right, guests. Right. Yeah. I'm just like, wow. But then it's all stark to say, here they have, you know, this family tree that can fit on, you know, like a legal size piece of paper, and then uh, then some of his white guests he has, and he has to like do pull out a, a scroll. huge scroll, <laughs> and I'm like, well, well, gosh, that's cool, and then I think, what well, I'm like, gosh, oh, the things that, you know, you lose, and it's like you're trying, you, it's your identity, and, right. and the things have been stolen from whole, you know, massive populations by white people. Right. And a lot of this goes into talks about our education as well. When we're talking about something like critical race theory, which gets everybody up in arms, um, because again, typically people don't understand what critical race theory is. But critical race theory is not something for, you know, age school children. Um, it was... Um, first came about for college level kids to think about the ways that our laws and our policies are affected by these things of race and racism and how then creating these laws and policies continue to perpetuate these issues of race and racism. Um, but really the conversation needs to be around our curriculum and what we're teaching. Because um, again, when we're thinking about white privilege, I gave the example of they have this positive representation. Julia, you mentioned earlier how um, on that checklist, they're able to have curriculum in their school that tells their history, tells where they came from. And I feel like people don't realize how important that is, again, for somebody's identity. We know that there is an extensive amount of BIPOC history here that largely isn't taught in schools. So typically when we're thinking about Native American history, for example, after I believe the 1700s, they're never mentioned again, which is why a lot of people think that Native American people are no longer around and that they don't exist anymore. Um, because again, we say, oh, you know, we kind of just put them on these cute little reservations and that's where they resided and it was happily ever after and then that's it. Um, and then again, with black history, typically curriculum only gives about one or two class periods dedicated to 
um, black history, about 8% of their overall school curriculum is dedicated to talking about black history, even though we know black history is very much intertwined with just the history of America in general. So it's important that we start rethinking education and putting these stories in. And again, this is not to erase white history as we know it, or history as we typically call it, um, but to actually tell the truth and tell the real story of how it happened because it's very difficult to talk about these incidences that happened in history without having all of these different perspectives because again it wasn't just white people that were there but it was all of these other groups as well that were being impacted and then it'll help people to understand why society is the way that it is today why we're seeing certain issues with certain um, racialized groups because we need to dig back into history to understand oh that's where it came from that's why i have this bias towards this person that's why i see this stereotype everywhere um but again, we're not infusing that in. And for some reason, it's so terrifying for people to think about including those other histories, even though, again, it doesn't mean erasing white history or history as we tell it, but just making sure it's more inclusive, telling the full story because the full story helps us to move forward. Um, I feel like even though we've made progress, of course, we're very stuck because of our lack to acknowledge what actually happened historically. It's very hard for us to move on um, if, again, we're not recognizing all of these other things that kind of came before us that are still affecting us. I had a college professor who would always say history is about the present. Um, and that's very true because everything that we see presently happening is because of what has happened in history. But again, it's so hard for people to understand, well, why do we have Black Lives Matter? Why do we have these products changing? Why are we so angry about a mascot it's because you didn't realize how terrible <laughs> these things are you didn't realize that just because we had the civil rights movement and martin luther king like that oh now all of these issues around the black community are fixed like no that's not how any of this happened and even again when we're telling these histories the very little that we do tell in education it's typically the mythologized version you know the pretty version um to make it again more acceptable for society but the stories of martin luther king he was one of the most hated men when he right. died you know and we don't think about it that way and typically people quote martin luther king when we're seeing um riots happening after a black person is killed by the police and they're like oh this is not what martin luther king would have wanted but it's like do you even know that man <laughs> do you even know what he was really saying mm -hmm. so even that is so important for us to understand what really happened how people really felt about these figures and what it was that they were really doing that ultimately landed them in the grave you know because that was why he was killed was because of the work that he was doing not just around race but around poor people and housing and all of these other things so we need to figure out a way to get comfortable with being uncomfortable as most people have been saying because we need to recognize the importance of all of these histories not just the single narrative that we've been telling mm -hmm. and you when you're mentioning about that this is not about erasing history i think that's important because one of the things we've seen especially uh in, in the last several years you know when under former president trump and we saw some of these um white male groups you know with this whole we will not be replaced and thinking about that and i think it's like i thinking why, why are they so afraid of not being replaced and i had to think of i'm like oh because like demographically they're saying that you know a population in the united states that is 
people of color will outpace those who are white. And so I'm like, okay, so we got white men who are afraid they're going to be in the minority. I'm like, why would that be a big deal? I'm like, oh, because how white people treat those who are minorities. And they're worried they're going to be treated like that. I'm like, well, that's not the case, though. That's not what we've seen historically when people of color have come into positions of power. And I'm like, I'm like, how, how, and it's, it's so, it's such a twisted way of thinking, but I think, you know, I, I, I see what they're thinking, but there's just, they're just so ingrained in some, it's, I call it myopic, that they can't see that it's actually okay. Right. And they're so afraid of, they're just holding on so tightly that they don't want to be told, you know, you're wrong, and this is not how it's going to be, and just chill. Right, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And Baldwin, James Baldwin, um, talks a lot about that, is this fear that white people have, this guilt that white people have, and how it really, like, manifests itself in, um, he uses, like, the like the metaphor of like a mirror a lot of the times, you know, like you're very afraid that, again, if the tables turn, that you are now going to be on the receiving end of these horrible, like atrocities that have been committed against these historically marginalized groups. But again, as you mentioned, historically, that's typically not how it has worked out um, in relations with, you know, BIPOC people and white people as far as BIPOC people who were in power. Um, And that is not where our society is headed. I feel like our society is trying really hard to be more inclusive and be more accepting of these things. But again, there's always that group of people that feels like giving up some of their privilege means that now they have absolutely nothing. Um, But that's not what this means to become a more post-racial society as many of us think that we're living in right now which is obviously not the case Um, but to truly become a post-racial society you are going to have to give up a little bit of things but it's so that we can all actually be equal and equitable and all of these things that are written in our declaration of independence and what america strives to be and what we proclaim to be we can't get there until we do all of this dirty messy um scary frightening work that people aren't ready to do um but we need to do it soon if we're going to make any change and like you said change is not going to be quick it's not going to happen overnight might not even happen in like 10 or 15 years but the more that we keep kind of pushing back and fighting what actually needs to be done i feel like everybody knows what needs to be done um but the more we keep pushing back the longer it's just going to take to get there um but we have to get there eventually someday hopefully (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and i'm thinking when you know talking about starting to work doesn't have to be scary in fact i wouldn't say it's even hard at all um you know there are so many resources available online in our libraries and you know whether you're reading books or you're reading articles online uh the James YWCA has uh, had a lot of programs in, in the years of um, resources. I think you probably still have it on your website, what the, what was going on that we talked about in April, uh, the Stand Against Racism. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and, you know, if you're listening and you're wondering, well, where do I start? I said, you could, I say, start with the James YWCA website, which is, is it, what's the address for that? YWCAJamestown.com. And then, you know, from there, you know, Google is our friend, I say, in yes. all cases, <laughs> um, you know, or even if you visit the James Prendergast Library and say, hey, I'm looking for books on 
on racism or, or on various topics like that, they will be able to help you out as well there. Start just by reading, I would say, because that's something you can do and handle on your own. I always say if you when you're reading, it's just you and that book or that right. you know, that magazine or whatever that may be. It's a good place. It's a, it's a start. And then from there, uh, you know, I think that you know there's always opportunities to you know either watch films, you know, listen to music, maybe that you haven't listened to before to get start to get a more rounder picture, right? And then try to have the conversations that you're you know that you're learning about as you read and, and get educated. So, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, it doesn't have to be scary. I know that it can seem scary because again of all of the information that's out there, the way that the media frames things. But just start small, start somewhere. Um, That's the most important thing is that you're trying, that you're actively seeking new information, that you're trying to better understand these different issues, to understand how these communities are operating, why these communities are the way that they are. yeah, start with a book. A book is always an easy thing to do. Um, our library is a perfect resource. Um, Google, like you said, we have all of these great technologies at our fingertips. So just utilize that. Google anything about literally anything when it comes to race or racism, and you'll probably be able to find something to help you out on this journey. Um, and again, the most important thing, you know, if you are somebody who is trying and you encounter, you know, kind of a situation where maybe you did kind of misstep a little bit, you said a microaggression. I know that our first reaction is always to get defensive when we're called out. Because again, we live in a society, in a culture where we typically call people out instead of calling people in. Um, But the most important thing is self-reflection. Why... Why do you get so angry when somebody's saying, oh, maybe you shouldn't say that, you know? Do some self-reflecting of why does that bother you so much um, being called out or called in about an issue of a group that you're not a part of and they're telling you that they're offended by it, you know? The most important thing is not to kind of argue, well, that's not my intentions, you know? Most people do have good intentions, but your intentions aren't what matters in this moment. If somebody's telling you that they're offended, that's what matters. And how can you go about this differently in the future now that you are aware that this is an issue or that this is not okay? So again, just trying to understand. And it's always important to note that, of course, you are going to have people who are part of these um, historically marginalized groups, racialized groups that aren't offended by these issues at all. They don't care to take the time to learn about these issues they don't have the time for it or again it's part of kind of self-preservation you know you don't want to constantly be consuming all of this negativity that is surrounding your community so yeah there's going to be people who are like oh I don't care about that issue I'm not offended by it but that really just speaks to the fact that we're not a monolith and again we're not meant to be in these categories to begin with Um, but regardless if you do have somebody who identifies with that racial group who's telling you offended that they're offended The most important thing is that you're trying to learn and understand and just to do better in the future. Right. Um, Alize, is there anything before we close out the topic for today that you want to add that we haven't talked about? Um, Not that I can think of. (laughs) Well, I I definitely, it's kind of a funny way to say it's been a distinct privilege and it is a privilege of a sort because in my role, I'm able to call in whoever I want usually to talk to me. And I, I thank you so much for taking this time to talk about these issues and talk about racism again with us today and uh, always hope to have you back. Yes. Thank you so much.